Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, everybody. Welcome to Island Conversations. This is a very strange and daunting time for us all with COVID-19. So I thought we would take a break from the more newsy kinds of Island Conversations, and we're going to talk music. I'm going to talk with Dr. Jay Saplan from Hilo, who is a music professor. Before we get to that, next week, we are going to talk with a psychologist from West Hawaii Community Health Center about some of the things we can do to relieve our anxiety and stress, because it's very normal for us to be feeling that way during this very strange time, and also how we can help our children deal with it. And by the way, for some of the latest in the local news, go to kwxx.com. We are posting updates about COVID-19 as soon as we get information and can verify it kwxx.com. Island Conversations is on the radio every Sunday morning on the Big Island of Hawaii on KWXX and B97B93 and is posted as a podcast at kwxx.com and at b97hawaii.com and wherever you get podcasts. And we rebroadcast the programs the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Jay Saplan. Dr. Saplan is the Director of Choral Activities and Assistant Professor of Music at the University of Hawaii at Manawa. He got his Bachelor in Arts in Music from Manoa, his Master of Education in Curriculum and Instruction from Concordia University in Portland. He got his Master of Music in Choral Conducting from the University of Oregon and his Doctor of Musical Arts in Choral Conducting from the University of Miami Frost School of Music. Dr. Saplan is known for his work in celebrating the intersection between Hawaiian music and choral performance, and he's the artistic director of Navai Chamber Choir. Our conversation was recorded several weeks ago. Good morning. Aloha, Dr. Saplan. Aloha, Sherry. How are you? I am so good, and I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, I talked about all this education you have in music, and I know that before UH, you actually taught at Hamilton College Mm -hmm. in New York. Yes. So you've been an academic, but what got you interested in studying music, which you obviously have devoted your life to? What drew you to this particular career? It's so interesting to think about the concept of being drawn to music, because for me, it was something that was so interwoven within my upbringing, just interwoven throughout our household and our family values music, especially going to Kamehameha schools when I was uh, in middle school up to high school. I had family members and kumu that showed me that music is not just an extracurricular Um, Activity music is something that is the essence of life here in Hawaii. Did any of your family members write music? Were they teachers of music or did you just sing around the house? (laughs) All things, yes. My parents were great connoisseurs of music. They made it a point whenever there was a musical group coming into town in Hilo to always go to it. We sung throughout the house, but 
the practitioners of music that I saw in my family were actually my grandparents. So my grandfathers were actually incredible singers, incredible saxophone players. My grandmothers were actually quite the karaoke singers. So within my household, you could hear an amalgamation not only of native Hawaiian melee, but Filipino folk songs like The Hill Sayo, Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole. And so when I came to music or when I came to becoming a literate musician, I came with this multicultural and diverse sound world that I could access before I even figured out what middle C was <laughs> in my first piano lesson. This is really interesting, and I have to tell you that I believe that your first conducting opportunity was when you were, in fact, in high school? Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, one thing I really value about Native Hawaiian education is, especially at Kamehameha, is that they value just the opportunity to try and to be hands-on. So my first conducting experience was actually under the mentorship of Kumu Springer, Kumu Michael Springer, who has been a celebrated educator here in Hawaii. He was away for a little bit and just entrusted to, why don't you just go and conduct something? And this is before I even figured out what was pattern or what conducting gesture looks like. But he trusted the musical spirit that I had. And how old were you at this time? Um, I think I was 14. Pretty cool. <laughs> Keep going. 14. And I just stood in front of a group of high schoolers and just started waving my arms. And the sheer conviction of will to make music, I think something happened. And he then told me, this is something that you should consider doing for the rest of your life. And so, here you are. Yeah, and here I am. I owe so much of who I am to Mr. Springer and his encouragement and his guidance. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so you've done a lot of study about the music of Queen Lily Ookalani. Why did you decide to study her and her music? I felt a lot of responsibility, especially as the first Native Hawaiian to receive this degree. Really? You in, were the first Native Hawaiian? Yeah. Oh, my yes. goodness. Yeah, and it was something that I didn't, wasn't necessarily aware of until mentors of mine for my undergraduate degree at Manoa told me that this would be an undertaking. Um, so I felt just a responsibility to articulate uh, the music that I grew up with and the music that I held dear as a Native Hawaiian in a, in a space that is diverse, multicultural, and academically rigorous. Especially at that time in my career, so much of it was not only being a practitioner, but being a defender of articulating how this music is worthy within a very Western Eurocentric context, articulating how it's refined. And I owe a lot to Lilio Kalani as a conductor, because without her, there would be no choral music or no legacy of choral music in Hawaii. You know, a lot of Native Hawaiians, we try to articulate our Native Hawaiian space and our, and our practices through the lens of hula, through Mele. But to think about how this monarch could create the space for Native Hawaiians within choral music, I mean, that was very meaningful for me because that's where I live as a Hawaiian. Well, what was it about choral music that drew you to that as opposed to the many other opportunities you could have had? That's a great question. I think for me, it's the opportunity to code switch. It showed this innate skill for Native Hawaiians to live in a space that was introduced, much like the ukulele, right? To live in a space that's introduced and to create music 
in the Hawaiian language, but to use instrumentation that came from all over the world and to read off of a book in a language that was introduced and to take a look at a community around you making music together in a very organized way. I mean, you have concepts from all over the world in terms of instrumentation, in terms of voicing, in terms of language, in terms of the culture of music making. It was global in scope, but at its heart's core, no one could ever argue that it was not Hawaiian, because it was. Because the way we communicated the way we created Kauna and the leadership at the helm, they were able to root themselves within the culture of their ancestors, but to have a forward-looking vision to understand that to operate from a space of Hawaiian music was one that was rooted but global. And so that's what I draw in my work, and that's, that's how I think as a Hawaiian. So let me back up. You know, it may be that some listeners may not know exactly what choral music is. Maybe you need to define that. That's great. So to me, and I think to a lot of textbooks, we define choral music as a group of people coming together and singing under the direction of a conductor. Now let's get back to Queen Lily Okalani. What was her musical background? She wrote a lot of songs, and anybody who pays attention to Hawaiian music would know that. I mean, just the song Aloha Oi, which is a very well-known song, would understand that. But what was her introduction to music? What was her background? Queen Lily Okalani, she was educated at the King's School, or the Missionary School, and her path to music making was both through the tradition of rote teaching, where she was expected to learn all of these chants and all of these songs uh, without reading any piece of sheet music, right? So she had, that was a crucial part of her upbringing where she had to learn all of these things. I mean, she's also the person that brought the kumulipo, the Hawaiian chant of creation, to the forefront. But uh, she, uh, it was an incredible part of her educational framework uh, from the missionary school to learn hymn singing or the tradition of hymn singing, especially at this time where the Hawaiian kingdom was very acculturated with the Christian faith. So she had to learn how to play piano. She had to learn how to read off of Western notation. She had to understand what voice parts were and what voice part she was. And not only that, as her skills started to blossom, she then learned how to play the organ. And um, I always like to say that our most finest musicians and our most complex musicians are organ players because they are the world's greatest multitaskers. You know, they're playing not only with their two hands, but their two feet, and they're all doing different things. <laughs> and they're thinking five measures ahead about which lever do I pull. I always like to think that she learned so much as a royal through the organ <laughs> about what to anticipate and how to live in the moment and also think and be five steps ahead. So she's learning the organ. She's becoming enveloped at Kauai Ha'o Church as well, an important church for our kingdom called the Westminster Abbey of the Pacific. But also at this time, I'm speaking specifically for just her as her musical upbringing, we are receiving guests from all over the world. And her training as a future queen 
She also got this training by listening to different musical groups, whether it be opera. Uh, she saw the beginning of opera with the Hoya Opera Theater, with the beginning of German and French instruments, with the beginnings of the Royal Hawaiian Band and Henry Berger. Through these different sound worlds, because she had such a keen interest and phenomenal talent within identifying and living in these sound worlds, she begins to get mentored by Henry Berger and people from all around the world. And so you see her writing in styles and playing in styles that were French, that were German, that were Italian. Within these Eurocentric sound worlds, she then writes in Hawaiian and creates this entire canon of music that is global in scope, but in the Hawaiian language, written by a Hawaiian monarch. The, one of the most important things in Hawaiian music is the concept of kauna or metaphor. And so while metaphor in a very ancient context was strictly text-based, she creates this space in which kauna is sound-based, using kauna not only within text, but within the piano or within the organ or within the violin. And so she continues to write and creates this canon of music and becomes the most celebrated and prolific composer to this day. How old was Queen Lily Ukulani when she started composing? Uh, 17. One of her first published pieces was entitled Nani Napua Ko'olau, that speaks of the beauty of the Ko'olau Mountains. The melody goes, da 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 And so from that incredible arch of the melody, she traces out the peaks and the valleys of the Ko'olau mountain range. Wow. Right? <laughs> it's crazy to think that. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. kind of chicken skin. So if you were to look at it at music, I mean, it, it ebbs and flows and creates these beautiful peaks and valleys and that very reminiscent to looking at a picture, actually, of the Ko'olau mountain range. One of the things that I really enjoy about Hawaiian music, Hawaiian songs, is they generally are about something that is familiar. The mountains, the flowers, the beauty of the Hawaiian islands, the people. And obviously, Queen Lili Uklani's music was like that. Did she collaborate or did she write both words and music for all of her pieces? She collaborated quite a bit, actually. And the people that she tended to collaborate with were either her siblings or the members of Nalani Eha, the Heavenly Four, with Like Like, her sister Kapoli, an unidentified person that we still have to figure out who it is. Is it a guy? Uh, we don't know. Really? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> with her brothers, Kalakaua, one of the most prevalent people that she doesn't always mention is Henry Berger. What's so interesting about this is that you can hear during her output, when that union or when that collaboration reaches its peak. Because that tends to happen, you know, Hawaiian music exists on this concept of even numbers, right? We love the number two, we love the number four. E ala e, kalahi kahi kina, a one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But then we're at the late 1800s, the mid to late 1800s, and the waltz is a humongous thing, right? So when we think about waltzes, it's in this concept of umpapa, umpapa, one, two, three. And then she writes ahila makani, right? E ke ho ha o ke, one, two, three, one, two, three. 
And so all of a sudden, because of this relationship she has with Henry Berger and this collaboration, she writes the first Hawaiian waltz. And then Hawaiian music is turned upside down. It's no longer in two. It's no longer in four. It's in three. So what that does for our people is she creates this new space where Hawaiian music now can exist in all structures of time. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Next week, we're talking with psychologist Dr. Catherine May about the anxiety we're all feeling right now. Let's hear a word from KTA Superstores before we get back to Dr. Jace Saplan. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. You said that she doesn't really mention Henry Berger. Why do you think she didn't mention him as a collaborator? I did read a little bit about the suspicion that she and Henry Berger, well, I'll use the term, were an item. Right. Or at least she was very fond of him. Yes. But I know she was married to John Dominus, so tell us what you know about that. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> it's hot gossip. <laughs> well, there's a lot of writing that goes into detail about a possible romantic relationship between the two of them. And a couple of reasons come to the forefront as to why that possibly have happened. She had a very, very turbulent relationship with her mother-in-law to the point where, you know, especially in her writings and her diary and my research of her, she's not one to step into a space where she puts her hurt at the forefront. I'm not talking about the overthrow. This is this is before, right? And so she does go into detail about the mistreatment that she had to endure with her mother-in-law. And that led to her second-guessing her place in life, her direction in life, and the purpose of why she was in this union to begin with. And that happened around the same time. So I guess you could make the argument that that's what could have led her to create different spaces of inspiration for herself. Another argument could be is that there was just such incredible musical chemistry between the two of them. If you think about how she used kauna within her music or how she wrote, for us from a Hawaiian space, when we say one thing in a song or in a mele, it could mean an infinite amount of things. Right? We could be mourning the loss of someone. We could be celebrating an affair. We could be speaking to the love of our lives. We could be actually talking. It's never really about rowing a canoe or the, the rain of this one specific place. It's about so many other things. When she steps into this collaboration, she starts to play with the English language. Her translations become much less, I'm going to use the word poetic, not in terms of like poetic value, but the wiggle room of metaphor. And so when she writes these pieces, you can interpret it through a lens of, oh, it is what it is, right? As opposed to what could it be? It's almost as if she's trying to find her voice to be bold, her voice to speak her mind. And with this collaboration, it almost seems as if she is finding her voice through her special friendship with Henry Berger. Like you said, hot gossip. Right. Dun, dun, dun. Back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, Queen Lily Ukulani was obviously very accomplished, and she went from being a princess to a queen. She became a prisoner. Mm -hmm. She was an advocate for the restoration of the monarchy. Do you see the themes in her music change over time as those different things happen in her life? That's a great question. I see one of the biggest prevalent themes throughout her entire compositional career as a celebration of Aloha Aina, of the love of the land. How it could be parsed out through different parts of her life could be how one perceives Aloha Aina, right? Aloha Aina, well, today, yes, it's a political term, but it wasn't always a political term. When you see her composing at the beginning of her career, at the beginning of her life, or her compositional output, Aloha Aina was a reverence of the Aina, right? As a, not immature, but someone that steps into a space and has the privilege to soak in the value of reverence of land, right? As Hawaii becomes more acculturated to Western ideals and Western thoughts, and as her responsibility as a monarch becomes much more real, and as she witnesses her brother, Kalakaua, go through what he has to go through, for instance, the Bayonet Constitution, then you see the beginnings of Aloha Aina becoming political. But this is at the time when she's writing pieces like Onipa'a, or the first um, Hawaiian anthem, Himelilahui Hawai'i. And so the value of Aloha Aina becomes nation building or securing a nation. And this mele sounds different because Hawaiian music is still being crafted through this offshoot of him singing and him writing because that's her upbringing, right? And so you have these mele that sounds like a hymn, feels like it could be a hymn, but the words are something entirely different, right? So let's backtrack. The first is a young aloha aina. The second is aloha aina and the beginnings of it being political. But the marriage between the words and the music aren't necessarily gathered together yet. Because sounds like a hymn? Probably not. And then you have her with Henry Berger, and she is experimenting all over the place. And so this aloha aina is political, not for the lens of the entire nation, but political for her assertion of her rights as a vahine, for her space as a woman, and for her voice as a monarch. And so you hear these mele that sound Italian, have roots of opera, could be a waltz, or are very refined like a French salon song. And then towards the latter part of her career, the imprisonment, then she circles and creates this whole space of Aloha Aina as resistance, where you see this beautiful union and this beautiful marriage and melding of her past, of her present, and of her future into songs like Kupua Pao Kalani, where she talks of the flowers of Uluhai Malama and you see the kana where she's not talking about the flowers from her garden in which someone would take those flowers and wrap it in the news of today and throw it up to her so she could figure out what's going on in her kingdom. Well, because when she was in prison, she wasn't allowed newspapers? No, she wasn't allowed to know what was going on. And so these flowers aren't just maybe, yes, they're flowers of her favorite garden, but they're her kingdom, they're her people. And then you hear like what this music sounds like 
you know, before it's bum bum beam bum 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 beam bum 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 beam bum bum. There weren't a lot of diversity in terms of chords, right? And then she uses everything. So Hawaiians could relate to it as like, oh, she's being nostalgic or she's trying to create a soundscape of emotion for these people. She's leading these people through music. Because what I love about Hawaiian music, right, for most of Hawaiian music, is I'm going to show you something. I'm going to play you something. And you use your agency or you use your life experience to connect with it. She's one of the first composers to be like, I'm going to tell you a story. And my composition is going to be super clear so that you cannot argue with what I'm feeling. She created that as a jump-off point for other composers where she could articulate hurt and she could articulate resistance, not through words, but through sound. Since during the time she was in prison, she really was isolated, but she continued to write music. Mm -hmm. Was she able to get that music out to the people? And if so, how did that happen? A lot of the melee after her overthrow, a lot of it was lost. A lot of it ended up being passed down oratorically. And so it wasn't until these mele, especially pieces like Sanoi or things that spoke of her Hanai children or whatever, that was personal to her. A lot of people argue that once she lost her throne, she lost her avenue for compositional output. So then a lot of it became a grassroots effort to keep the queen's mele alive after the overthrow. Hui Hanai, part of the Liliuokalani Trust, did amazing work to put pen to paper of these mele, but we can never entirely truly be sure if there are still mele out there that are, is lost in the cosmos, or if the mele that was written down was the actual mele. That's the thing about music, right? Especially when you come from a culture that was passed on oratorically. At that time, so much was lost for our people that the tradition of passing down song was lost. That's true for a lot of cultures where their history is an oral history. You know, and stories change over time as they get told from generation to generation. Friends of mine and I have just been talking about that because as we get older, somebody passes on. And I was even relating to somebody. My experience as the oldest child in the family, Mm -hmm. my understanding of my parents is different than the understanding of my brother who's 10 years younger, you know, the youngest child in the family. Right. Yeah. He didn't have those, all those same things. Yeah. I I agree with that a thousand percent because it happens in my family too, right? Like we're, we're storytellers. That's what we do as humans. But part of me thinks about what is this quest for accuracy, right? What is this quest to make sure that every single note must be perfect? What lens is that framed in, right? I think there's so much beauty and wonder around it that when we think about if the main goal is to preserve it for the sake of accuracy, then it's no longer a Hawaiian behavior, right? Back to Queen Lily Uokalani, yeah. you mentioned her Hanai children, and I know she had no biological children, but I know she had a number of Hanai children, so she must have liked children, liked having them in her life. And it sounds like her personal life was reflected in some of her music, just as was the political situation of the time. Yeah, I think what she chooses to keep private comes to fruition in her melee. And I think for her, her role as a mother and her role as has Hanai children is something that still continues to be explored, right? So, I mean, there are some resources that give a number to how many children she has Hanai. 
or a step into a space of being a Hanai mother. But you take a look at some mele and how she names her children. And there are some mele in which we don't really get, we haven't preserved all of the stanzas. Or there are some names that pop up and come into the forefront, especially like, you know, Kapoli wasn't one of her children, but Kapoli is a name of mystery, right? Which we can get to later. But <laughs> in terms of her Hanai children, I think that's something that she valued so much to try and not be blatant or keep it out or to keep it within the ohana or try to keep it sacred and safe and reverent. Yeah. Where did her Hanai children come from? Whose biological children were they in general? And did they maintain a relationship with the rest of the family? Or did she fully assume responsibility for them? I realize it's separate from her music career, but I'm curious about that, what you know. Well, some of them will come, will come from her royal family or royal sisters, right? So she stepped into a space of Hanai with, with Kelly Kolani. But when she wrote the Queen's Jubilee, for the Queen's Jubilee at that point, Mahalo Piha Mo'io Enelani. She, at that point, was offered to be a godmother for the Queen's children. At and that point. the Queen was whom? Uh, queen Victoria, yeah. So it was very, very interesting. She was a mother to many people. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting that the monarch of England would ask the monarch of Hawaii to step in and play a role in her children. Well, it speaks to the relationship at that time between these two countries, right? Are there yes. particular music pieces that Queen Lily Okalani wrote that you'd like to mention that we have not talked about yet? Oh, boy. I know. There's 165 <laughs> or so. I don't have time for all of them. But I know that Aloha Oi, for example, is something that people hear all the time. But I was intrigued. What people hear mostly and what people know is the chorus only. There's more to that song than right. just Aloha Oi. So what is that song? About? There's three verses for that. But what's super interesting about Aloha Oi is we don't really know why it was composed or how it was composed. There's conflicting stories. The one that I believe and the one that I think the most trusted sources believe is she composed this at the time when she was doing a tour on behalf of her brother. Her brother, King Kalakaua? Her, her brother, King Kalakaua, around Oahu. And at this point, she is hosting guests on a huaka'i near the Ko'olau, Ko'olau Mountains, and they're going on horseback. And between one of her handmaidens and one of the guests, she sees that they are becoming fond of each other. And she's, you know, writing in the back, and she already has a song written in her head. And she gifts this song to the handmaiden later when it's finished, as a kilo or as an observation that she saw between the two young lovers. Oh, well, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. You know, there's one song by Queen Lily Okalani, which I first heard Dennis Kamakahi perform, which is called By and By Hoi Mai Oi. Yes. Which I thought was really kind of cute, showed that she wrote songs about like everyday occurrences. What's that song all about? Well, it could be about a couple of things. We can interpret it as her just observing an argument between two people and her just saying, oh my gosh, get over it, by and by. Ugh. <laughs> So that's one part of the kauna. Another part of the kauna could be her witnessing two people just outside together, right? And just having a conversation that leads from discord back into a union 
right? So the cycle of life, right? So Dennis Kamakahi, when he introduced this song, said that it was also potentially about her lady-in-waiting who was delaying, 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 and Queen Liliuokalani finally kind of said, you know, let's get on with it. Right. <laughs> right, let's, let's go. Right, so I guess the conversation could be, the, 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 the argument could be between her and her handmaiden, so... <laughs> All kinds yeah. of things. How interesting yeah. for you, though, to go back in time and do a study of her and her music and sort of try to get into her head to figure things out. Well, yeah, I think after Queen Lilia Okalani, we step back into the space of preservation, right? I mean, the three components, according to the great scholar Bell Hooks, is preservation, propagation, and innovation. You know, Queen Lilia left the sound role of the music making of Hawaii within the space of innovation. We lose quite a bit after her, and we struggle with articulating with what is Hawaiian music. Whenever I ask kupuna or aunties or uncles, they're like, okay, what is what is Hawaiian music after Queen Liokalani? A lot of them will reference, you know, the golden age of Waikiki with Hawaii calls and things like that. And while that may be great to think about what is Hawaiian music, you know, we lost so much of the language at that time. And you listen to some of the mele, and it says it's in Hawaiian, but it's not, right? It's nonsensical syllables, like yakahula hikidula. What is that? I don't know what that is, right? Well, my grandmother had some sheet music that I have framed, and it's, oh, how she could, I think it's yiki yaki wacky hacky do. Right. That's yeah. a rough interpretation right. totally, of what it but, is. You know, but it's obviously not really Hawaiian. It's not, yeah. But and so, it was sort of presented that way. Yeah. And I think at that point, you know, so much of our kupuna at that time were trying to really think about, oh, okay, so where is the pith of my culture here in the sound world of the world? Once people started thinking or researching or becoming scholars of Leo Kalani, then they realize, oh my gosh, I come from this mo'oku alhara, I come from this genealogy or legacy. It's so interesting today, too, is not a lot of people are aware of just how much of a phenomenal composer she was. I think that's an important responsibility I have here in Hawaii, is for us to not lose sight of this connection we have. Whenever we see like a hometown hero do well, or whenever we see this incredible Hawaiian musician, I'm not surprised. We have this incredible lineage. And when we can articulate it, and when we are aware of the connection, you know, we can only go farther from here. I mean, it's the Hawaiian concept. When we know where we come from, infinite possibilities arise. I had no idea till I started getting ready to talk with you that Queen Lily Ukulani had been quite so prolific, mm -hmm. and obviously more prolific than what even is documented, since you said a lot of her stuff may be lost. So what a lovely opportunity to learn more about her from you. Is there yeah. anything else you'd like to add about Queen Lily Ukulani? That she will continue to teach us for many years to come. Are you continuing your study of her? Yes, I have quite a number of projects still in the back burner. I am working on a book, and um, my ensemble, Navai Chamber Choir, a ensemble rooted in the preservation, propagation, innovation. We just released an album of her works called Eo Elilio Kalani, which you can find on most music streaming platforms. And looking forward to more collaborations with the Lilio Kalani Trust on her. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Mahalo. Dr. Jason Plan, what would you like to say before we say aloha? What would you like to add? I'd just like to offer you a very fond mahalo, Sherry. Thank you so much for giving me the time and space to talk story about Lilio Kalani and this incredible choral legacy that we have here in Hawaii. 
Very good. Thank you so much for being with us. Aloha. Aloha. And to our audience, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time for another Island Conversations. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with aloha and try to stay calm. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.